1: wherever you get your podcasts. Intelligence is an imperfect business. If it were precise, it wouldn't be intelligence. Mike Hayden is famous for saying that. If it's, if it's a fact, it's not intelligence. We deal with the unknown.
0: It is interesting to think about the supporting staff who can actually use all of this intelligence.
1: Because Dick Cheney was an avid reader of intelligence. For his briefing book, they would include not only everything the president was getting, but they would have a section that they called Behind the Tab, absolutely full of more intelligence assessments, more raw reporting, all of the things that the vice president could possibly be interested in.
0: I would love to hear you talk about one of your briefing recipients, Mueller, mm-hmm. because uh <laughs> obviously his name has come back. <laughs> Dr. David Priest is a former intelligence officer who worked at the CIA and the State Department during the Bill Clinton and George W. Bush administrations. He's the author of The President's Book of Secrets, The Untold Story of Intelligence Briefings to America's Presidents, for which he interviewed more than 100 national security A-listers from the past five decades, including four presidents, five vice presidents. He's a former intelligence briefer himself, having personally delivered the country's top intelligence each morning, to senior U.S. government officials for more than one year. Priest appears as an authority on the history and politics of intelligence on CNN, Fox News Channel, MSNBC, and he's published articles in the Washington Post, Politico, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, and the Cypher Brief. He joins me today. David, great to have you on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics once again.
1: It is great to be back. It was a fun conversation back, I think, in April or May of this year, and I look forward to digging deeper on some other topics.
0: Uh, on our last talk, we talked a lot about presidents, and we almost focused uh, exclusively on the PDB, the President's Daily Briefing. This is that little black book that we picture in our heads that the president gets every day with all the intelligence. But uh, there's there's a richer story, and I'd like to talk about recipients who aren't the president.
1: Yeah, even right after World War II, as the early parts of the U.S. intelligence community started to form, it was never only the president getting intelligence. He was always sharing top-level documents with others, and lower-level documents were going to other senior officials that just weren't at that level. But when it comes to Lyndon Johnson... From the beginning, he started sharing this most exclusive document that he had, the president's daily brief, with others, such that within a few months, it was also going to the vice president, Hubert Humphrey, because he had been elected uh, to a second term by then, Mm. going to a couple of senior National Security Council staffers, the advisor and the executive secretary. It was going to the secretary of state, the secretary of defense, and four others. product also went to Bill Moyers, whose official role was special assistant to LBJ, He was serving as press secretary as well, and informally assisting almost as a shadow chief of staff, but not a normal position to get the PDB in times since.
0: We uh, only had a limited time the the last time talking about that PDB. I mean, it contains so much. I mean, but it is also a summary. It's the all the intelligence product of the CIA that they believe is important, edited that day for the president. Sometimes with a lot of last-minute adjustments. We talked about all those stories. And you think about it and you say, if it's with the president alone, how much can a president really read? How much can a president really benefit from it?
1: You hit on something here that it's called the president's daily brief, but even that top-level intelligence document has never gone to the president alone. Well, we talked about the people getting it for Lyndon Johnson, but with uh, his successor, Richard Nixon, it it changed. Nixon restricted the dissemination of it dramatically. At the beginning of his term, there were only four other people receiving it. Uh, Soon thereafter, he added perhaps his closest personal friend in the administration, John Mitchell, who was the attorney general. Nixon famously didn't let people inside his personality so when John Mitchell was getting the PDB, that's who the CIA got its best insight into what would work for Nixon, who was not sharing what he would like. Mitchell told the CIA officer, the president is a lawyer and a lawyer wants facts. So almost overnight, they changed the format of this document to put more facts up front and to make clear when there was opinion as opposed to fact. Um. That's good advice from somebody who normally would not get the president's daily brief and get that level of information. But it was because of that relationship with the president itself.
0: Talk about the folks who aren't the household names, mid-level officials, working level folks who do the nuts and bolts of foreign policy and national security.
1: Right. Product we've talked about so far, the president's daily brief, has always been limited uh, at its minimum to just a couple of people. Uh, At its maximum to a few dozen, but there are hundreds, even thousands of people working in national security bureaucracies uh, across Washington and around the world. So it really does go back to the 1950s as that national security bureaucracy was building. Back then, the Central Intelligence Agency produced a product called the Current Intelligence Bulletin. And that went to Harry Truman and about a dozen others. But under Eisenhower, who did not focus so much on top-level intelligence coming from CIA, expanding the dissemination of this current intelligence bulletin. There were about 30-some in 1954, expanding to 48 in 1957. It was going to close to 100 people by late 1958. That's a wide dissemination for a product that was seen as the top-level product of the time. What's happened since is As the president gets his own document and a few others get to read it, there are a range of other products that are going to everybody from the assistant secretary level in the various national security departments down the line. The main difference there is classification and the sensitivity of the materials within it. I'll give you one example from the Nixon administration. Product evolved from this current intelligence bulletin. They called it the central intelligence bulletin, but it was produced at three different levels. One of them They called the black book and it had top secret information, the highest classification level. It had satellite imagery, but it was only given to about three dozen people beneath that was the red book. The red book was also top secret, but it was not allowed to include satellite imagery. It therefore was able to go out to about 150 people following that was the white book. And that was only at the secret level, so it excluded all sensitive sources. It went out to about a thousand different people in the national security bureaucracies.
0: We think about Washington and some of these higher level officials, uh, perhaps, and those of us watch TV and movies, of course, you know, think about it as very tight-lipped professional people. but. It's a little bit of a, a danger. We have had certainly um, spy cases. Uh.
1: And that's why the top-level documents have been kept to a smaller mm-hmm. group. But even even the level below that, Bruce, there's great care taken to make sure that these products are, are not spread out beyond what their natural readership should be. Uh, one, one step in the wrong direction for this was in the 1970s. The new CIA director, Bill Colby, came into office. He was an old newspaper man. And he thought, you know what, we can get customers to focus on our product more if we produce it as a fold out newspaper, just like the other stuff they're reading. And, and that was good in one way. It went to fewer than 50 people originally. Um, it got more attention. The problem was there was a rumor that went around that some serious top secret information was leaked. And when they traced it back, they figured it was somebody who just couldn't remember what he read in a regular newspaper versus this top-secret newspaper. So they quickly walked that back and started producing it as a
0: regular 85 by 11 document again. We talk so much here about Ronald Reagan. Um, I've done a series on Ronald Reagan, which has been delayed, but we do plan to finish it for the end of the year. That's why I think it's, it would be great to consider... Reagan in this context, you in your book, and by the way that is the president's book of secrets. Uh go out and get it if you hadn't uh, the last time. Reagan it seems uh, under his administration expanded the amount of intelligence and who then the distribution of it, not always with a good outcome.
1: Yeah, the Reagan era is fascinating for all the areas you've explored, but also for intelligence because that top-level document the PDB didn't just go to Reagan and it didn't just go to the vice president and the secretary of state and others as it typically had. During the Reagan administration, the PDB started floating around the white house a little bit in a way that didn't make a lot of people very comfortable. In fact, the first national security advisor for Ronald Reagan, Dick Allen, he told me that there were copies for the president, the vice president for himself, for director Casey at CIA, et cetera. And then he said, And then there was one for the Washington Post, as far as I was concerned, because it wouldn't take it that long to leak. The fact that the PDB floated around the White House and National Security Council staffers at a low level were seeing it led to a situation where even one White House official was found making copies of the president's daily brief and keeping it in his garage at home. Um, One of the national security advisors told me that that was quickly corrected and did not happen again. But it did led to this very different view of intelligence that, as we mentioned last time, upset uh, George Bush quite a bit. He told me it upset him a lot. And that's why he put much more stringent controls on this book with all of the recipients of it when he was president.
0: That's a great point to make, by the way. I know that you talked with uh, George H.W. Bush uh, mm-hmm. as part of this uh, a book. Per- perhaps The Sun as well or, or no, it didn't get didn't get a chance for that or?
1: Yeah, I got input from all of the living ex-presidents at the Times, Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush, and uh, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton all shared stories with me. But just as exciting as those were the stories from all the other recipients of the book, the people that we're talking about on this podcast, mm-hmm. the vice presidents. Uh, Dan Quayle, he actually saw the president's daily brief before George H.W. Bush as president did, because he got his briefing a little bit earlier and that way Quayle could pop into the Oval Office and join the president's session without having to interrupt and ask questions, he would have already gotten those questions answered from his briefer. So getting some of those stories helped a lot. It also showed me the evolution of the product for these other customers. Mm. For Vice President Gore, for example, one of the most active recipients of intelligence in U.S. government history, he was such an avid reader of the intelligence product that he didn't just get the president's book the cia created a whole second president's book of secrets and they just called it the vice president supplement and every day they produced a book of analysis based on the vice president's interests and needs and he ate it up
0: i remember uh, uh you know a little off topic but i remember just on the gore i recall a story where he uh, of of uh, he was being shown a uh, email list for a fundraising kind of company and, and shown the software. And it's kind of like the vice president who's running for president coming to the office and you're showing this. But the, the tech guy who was showing the system didn't think there was he was listening very much and he's showing him all the details and we do this and do this and gore was silent the entire time after he was done he figures okay he's going to go go to the next desk and and finish his visit no gore asks three very detailed questions about the system that he had just repeated so uh i think that one of the great things about your book is that it provides some insight in a, in a different kind of way than a than some of the traditional books about presidents, vice presidents, and and other people. Um, for instance, uh, we've cited your book on the, on the Reagan series as we try to understand Ronald Reagan better. Uh, because one of the things it does on a one side, we 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 saw through some of the bu- some of the research that your book did that Reagan was a documented avid reader of intelligence. Um, on the other hand, it also this story of how. Reagan dealt with his subordinates demonstrates a point that many, even of his own friends, contend about his management skills and how sometimes he was just letting subordinates run the show. And you mm-hmm. see that in, in this action. in In the story you just told, I think we see... Uh, moving towards answers to the questions we've always had about vice presidents: How did the vice president become so important in modern times and how much is the intelligence product that they receive? If they didn't have it, maybe they wouldn't be able to say much with the lunch with the president.
1: That's right. There was a big, big play on that back in the Kennedy administration when Kennedy and Johnson, who had no love lost for each other, were going through various foreign policy discussions Kennedy often wouldn't include Johnson in that inner circle. And his excuse for doing so was saying, well, Lyndon Johnson hasn't read all the cables, ignoring the fact that he as president could authorize his national security staff to give Johnson anything he wanted. Most presidents since then have included their vice president in things. Uh, One of the best stories of intelligence for vice presidents, though, comes from a time when that didn't happen. When Richard Nixon nominated Gerald Ford for vice president and he assumed the duties of the vice presidency, at that time, the top-level document, the president's daily brief, had its most limited dissemination in history. It was only going to Richard Nixon and to Henry Kissinger.
0: Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: So during a tour of the CIA that Ford was brought out for, the director happened to walk him through the Office of Current Intelligence. That was the name of the bureaucratic group that produced the PDB and other high-level documents, and as they're walking through, there just happens to be a copy of the president's daily brief on one of the tables, and Ford sees it and, of course, says, well, what's that? The director replies, well, that's the president's daily brief. That's the document that goes every day to the president and the national security advisor. Do you want to see it? Ford, of course, goes, yeah, sure. The director immediately offers not only, okay, uh, we'll let you start reading it, but we also will send this man here, a briefer, with you every day, and he can come to your house, he can talk through the document, whatever you need from him, he'll be your personal briefer. Ford ate it up at his house in Alexandria, because this is before the Naval Observatory was available for the Vice President. At his house in Alexandria, the CIA briefer would talk through this document with him, and Ford carried that pattern into the Oval Office with him. He was the first president to take a daily in-person briefing directly from a CIA officer. So you see how that that influence on the vice president actually carried forward to when Ford was the senior decision maker. In Reagan's administration, that's when the CIA started sending out personal briefers to the whole range of high-level customers, so that the Secretary of State, George Shultz, the Secretary of Defense, Caspar Weinberger, and others who received this top-level document, uh, it was delivered to them by a CIA officer who would stay and talk through the items and answer questions. It didn't really happen much before then, with the exception of Ford. You uh, yourself
0: were a briefer, and exactly. while uh, we didn't get into it as much uh, last time because uh, you hadn't you haven't briefed presidents per se, but you've briefed many others. Perhaps you could talk a, pic- a bit about that.
1: I did that job during the George W. Bush Administration. My daily customers were the Attorney General, John Ashcroft, and the FBI Director, Bob Mueller. I also had the opportunity to substitute for the briefer who went to the White House and I would brief uh, Dr. Rice, the National Security Advisor, and her deputy. Um, in each of those cases, there's a dual function going on. They are senior customers in their own right. and The intelligence has to be brought to them and made relevant to what they need for their decision making, but all of them also have a boss and that's the president of the United States. So part of that briefing is also making sure that they have what they need when immediately after your briefing, they're going to go and meet with the president and talk about this very intelligence issue and what they need to do about it. You have to help prep them for that to make sure that they have all of the information and insight that will help them with these tough national security decisions.
0: I mean, would the question come that way sometimes? What does the president need to know? You know, it's funny that there would often be
1: an unsaid understanding, Mm -hmm. at least with my customers. Uh, Every day after I briefed the Attorney General and Director Mueller, back then, every single day, they ran downstairs, got in the car, went down Pennsylvania Avenue to meet with the president because there were daily meetings of the Homeland Security team at that point. It was often unstated that if there's something that would help them with the president, Uh, It was part of my duty to make sure that I understood what the president was being briefed that day so that they could coordinate that and not be surprised when they went in. Uh, Nobody behaves well under surprise.
0: (laughs) And I think whatever people think about George W. Bush as president, I also believe that uh – he was somebody who could be very intimidating to subordinates if they didn't have their facts straight. And he he might ha- ask the one question that would throw them off. Uh, that's we never know what goes on in the awful Oval Office, but that's my sense.
1: Well, you, you got that right. And, and going back into the history and digging in, as you've done with the Ronald Reagan series, it shows that sometimes those pop culture impressions of presidents and their advisors just don't hold water. The biggest one here, of course, is with George W. Bush, uh, not seen as Uh, much of a reader, not seen as much of a thinker. Well, in those daily intelligence sessions, uh, I can tell you his briefers felt like they were getting uh, examined every day that this was a grilling situation where he was drilling down on intelligence, asking the second, third order implications, pressing his advisors on what they thought. It was a very intense time. And that doesn't necessarily match the general public impression of how he conducted business.
0: Part of that uh, characterization also involved that Cheney's running the show and that sort of thing. But there were uh, adjustments made for Dick Cheney, and I'm sure he was, uh, uh, like other vice presidents, and perhaps even more a recipient of this intelligence.
1: Yeah, Dick Cheney, uh, honestly, in the research for this book, two of the best stories I came along were both Dick Cheney's stories from decades apart. One of them has to do with his time as vice president. I mentioned that Al Gore had received a second book just for him, That was discontinued for Dick Cheney, which was a bit surprising because Dick Cheney was an avid reader of intelligence himself, had been on the Intelligence Committee, had been a secretary of defense and a White House chief of staff. But what they did instead is for his briefing book, they would include not only everything the president was getting, but they would have a section that they called behind the tab and it would be a tab in a three ring binder absolutely full of more intelligence assessments more raw reporting all of the things that the vice president could possibly be interested in and sometimes it would take the briefing to be a really thick set of papers that took a long time to get through but as he told me when i asked him about it he said i was the vice president now which meant i had a lot of time on my hands and the president wanted me to be the point person on the intelligence and then we could talk about what to do about it so he was very involved with the intelligence and the national security decision-making, but there was no doubt the president, in his words, was the deciderer on these things. The other Cheney story does go back to when he was sect deaf, uh, back when he was receiving the PDB on a daily basis, and he also had briefer come to him as usual, but one day his regular briefer wasn't able to make it, and so they sent a substitute briefer to Cheney's townhouse in McLean, Virginia, and probably because of the stress of briefing the secretary of defense, thinking about what you're going to say, how you're going to say it. The briefer is looking down at his book, runs up the steps to the townhouse, rings the bell. And instead of the vice president or his wife opening the door, he sees a woman in lingerie and <laughs> in his mouth goes agape because that's not what he expects. Uh, the woman looks out, sees a man in a suit holding a, a locked bag with something in it. And clearly knows what's going on and she just points next door and says, I think you're looking for over there. Which plays the question, if this happened often enough that she was prepared for it, why did she continue to answer the door that way? <laughs>
0: You know, as much intelligence as we have in this in this uh, nation, though, there's some questions we'll never have an answer to. <laughs> That's right. And now, if you
1: have a Dick Cheney and lingerie story, they can picture that however they want.
0: My friends and I joke about the uh because Dick Cheney was famous for the meeting before the meeting. And, uh, you know, if there's a group of us meeting uh, for some reason, we'll have, oh, let's go to a diner and have a Dick Cheney meeting, the meeting before the meeting where we decide what all three of us will say. And then, uh, you know, and, and that that having the 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 tab behind the tab kind of, uh, yeah. intelligence, it does sort of, uh, lead me to, to think that way. Uh, how'd you feel being a briefer? How did you enjoy the job? Stressful job? Was there moments where you're like, this is the greatest thing I've ever done? Yeah, it's hard.
1: It's hard not to see that job as one of the best jobs possible because, you are in a sense representing the many people who work on intelligence and national security issues, uh, getting that material to the people who, who need to know it. You're at least hoping to reduce their uncertainty as they make these major decisions. So there is some pressure on it, but frankly, it, it's also, it's also a joy to do it because you see the quality information and insight that is developed on these very difficult issues. Some of the, countries around the world where it's hard to get insights on leadership decisions or capabilities. And you see the amazing work that's done by the intelligence community to help inform our decision makers. Uh, the thing for me going in every morning, and that's the downside of the job is it does start in the middle of the night because you have to prep for hours before seeing the customers to start their day. But I remember many mornings going in, Opening up the book showing the draft articles that were written that were going to the president and the others designated to receive them. And there would be days when I would open it up and I would read something that we'd collected overseas or something that we'd analyze. And and my jaw would drop and I would think, wow, that's that's why we do this. This this has paid off as a taxpayer. I'm proud of this. And then sometimes I would open that book and I would see a piece and I would say, that's it. That's all we got. We're giving that to the president. That, that doesn't move the ball forward very much. And you couldn't always predict which you were going to get. Sometimes it depended on the collection that was coming in from various intelligence sources. Sometimes it depended on the topic that was being analyzed. But the job itself is one of the best jobs that anyone in government can have because you are directly helping the people who have to make the toughest decisions that get passed up to that senior level.
2: So, turn to the nerds to answer your real world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Just a reminder to go to the website at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Subscribe to us on Stitcher or Apple Podcast if you are not already subscribed. Subscribe by email. And consider the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Premium Extra Podcast where you get extra episodes not available to regular subscribers. With the current president's personality, expressive behavior, tweeting, Mm-hmm. unorthodox approach. These are probably some of the nicer terms that we'll hear in podcasting today. About uh, A lot of attention has shifted to this subject and particularly to the intelligence and to the decision-making of the people advising him because so many that are kind of concerned are like, well, I hope those guys around them are doing a good job. How do you right. think the intelligence product shapes the job that those people have to do.
1: Well, we've got some insight on this from public comments that CIA Director Mike Pompeo and the Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats have made. They describe Trump's briefing as a very interactive event where the president is engaged. He's asking questions. They're on the edge of their seat trying to respond. They say Trump likes to pour over the visuals, the maps, the charts, the pictures and videos. And what Mike Pompeo called the killer graphics. Well,
0: he's, a, he's a little like Reagan.
1: Yeah, uh, it seems like he's more engaged than, than many would think. Now, of course, we don't know with almost any president, even historically, it's hard to assess how that actually influences their thinking. Most of us aren't self-aware enough to know how new information informs and updates our worldview. Uh, very hard to do that in real time. But in terms of the briefings, there is some surprise there. Many people predicted, based on the personality of Trump, based on his apparent lack of appreciation for hearing news he doesn't like. Uh, well, that is the job of an intelligence briefing. And many people thought that these briefings wouldn't last. Well, he's confounded his critics there because by all accounts, he's still receiving regular intelligence briefings. And so are all the people uh, beneath him in the senior levels of the US government, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, they're all getting their intelligence briefings too. Just like in every administration, how that intelligence plays out in their discussions depends on the personality of the president, the power relationships among those people, and frankly, how much authority they feel that they have delegated to them to take action on those issues. We don't have full insight on that yet, but we do know that intelligence is being delivered and appears to be taken seriously at the highest levels of this administration.
0: Yeah, I remember in our last conversation, there was still some question about it. In, in your past experience or history, have you seen a president be saved kind of by an associate who saw something in the intelligence or in heard something in the briefing that the president had missed?
1: Yeah, this was a hard one because we don't have great insight into the president's discussions throughout the day as to what happened. But I can tell you a few things. First, personally, from briefing, um, from briefing Bob Mueller at FBI and John Ashcroft, from briefing Condoleezza Rice, all the time they would read something and highlight it and say, "I need to talk to the president about this." So it was part of the process to make sure that those people that he was allowing to see the information. We're reading it, thinking about it, internalizing it, and then deciding what's the angle here that we think the president needs to focus on. That was part of their job. Now, at least in the case of George W. Bush, he was also reading the intelligence deeply, thinking about it and all of that. Uh, historically, that hasn't always been true. Richard Nixon, who was a foreign policy fanatic, uh, loved the topic, loved thinking about it, strategizing about it does not appear to have been a very close reader of all the assessments that were provided to him. So most of the information that the intelligence conveyed was probably brought to him by Dr. Kissinger in their many times a day talks about foreign policy and national security. In terms of someone being saved by an advisor who saw the intelligence and he didn't, the closest thing I have to that is in the case of Bill Clinton and Al Gore, where Al Gore told me and Bill Clinton confirmed, That all the time, Al Gore, who was reading much more intelligence, had the time to dig, dig into it. He would bring things to the president's attention and say, did you see this? You know, we really need to work on this. And it wasn't that Bill Clinton hadn't seen it because he wasn't paying attention to the products he was getting. It was just that Al Gore was getting so much more that there would be occasional things that he would know from his previous conversations with the president that Clinton would want to discuss with him.
0: It's so interesting the thinking about the modern vice presidency, and and, and it really starts after Truman and Alvin Barkley, and, and yeah. being a member of the National Security Committee and and being in on the, some meetings, and you know that that's really enhanced the modern presidency. Having two people, yeah. uh, though we think of the VP sometimes as a kind of like also you know an afterthought, we talked about uh, previously with an interview with A.J. Blame, who's the author of The Accidental President, about Truman, and mm-hmm. I was questioning him because I really felt reading his accounts of the first few days of of Truman that if not for Jimmy Burns... Um, yeah. who had all this intelligence before, you know, uh, about what had gone on after FDR's death. You had a president who kept everything close to the vest, not very good when he dies in office. And then, You know, uh, without Jimmy Burns and some other people, we might not have had this story of this man from Missouri who takes over the presidency and does uh, an arguably good job in the first few years. And it is it is interesting to think about the supporting staff who can actually – Use all of this intelligence, uh, uh, product. Is that something that's talked about in the agencies? Like, gosh, we're creating a lot of product here. Uh, Are we doing to, are we creating too much that it can't be used?
1: I think there is an issue of focus and who do you need to provide information to and how. Uh, The best example of that playing out with the vice presidency and the rise in the modern era of the vice president as an actual senior customer, as opposed to an afterthought, is with Walter Mondale. Uh, Walter Mondale with Jimmy Carter was given vast responsibilities and overall advisor job. Um, He actually saw the same copy of the president's daily brief as Carter saw after Carter saw it and made notes in it. That copy would go to Walter Mondale, who would therefore get insight not only into the intelligence, but also into Carter's thinking. So agency officers realized, okay, so we've got a product going to both people. Clearly, they're getting some insight on it from each other. And they would have to have conversations with people like the National Security Advisor to find out. All right. So what's going on? What could be useful? What would be more or less useful? Trying to target products at lower level officials, but still senior in bureaucracies like assistant secretaries and such. That can be a little bit easier because it's easier to build a relationship as a senior intelligence officer with an assistant secretary than it is to build that relationship with the president or the vice president. They're simply the matter of access and the matter of time. In general, the products are more easily tailored to lower-level officials who have to make tactical decisions on foreign policy. The amount of bureaucratic attention, however, that goes to the president and the highest level of officials is dramatically more to try to take those kernels that you get and determine what would be more helpful for them.
0: And there uh, is also some briefings that go to Congress as well.
1: Yeah, Congress. It's it's funny. Congress has had a dramatic shift, just like the vice presidency, because if you go back before the mid 1970s, Congress was given very little intelligence, relatively access to it was severely limited. But the uh, investigations in the mid 1970s, the church committee, the Pike committee that led to revelations about the intelligence community also led to the establishment of permanent oversight committees. And the amount of intelligence information and analysis going to Congress exploded after that, when Congress became a customer of intelligence information as well. Now, it's not the same information that is going to the president. The president's daily brief has never been delivered to Congress. The intelligence assessments would be consistent. That is, there wouldn't be one assessment given to the president and a different one given to Congress uh, that would violate the ethic of the intelligence community to call it like they see it. It's simply a matter of the sensitivity of the sources, the details about how the information was collected. The intel committees at this point, however, are involved in everything from receiving analysis to overseeing covert action that is directed by the president. Congress has become a serious intelligence consumer in a way that simply couldn't have been imagined going back 50 years.
0: And Speaker Ryan, I mean, he is in the line of succession. Uh, so right. he's getting—he's probably you know, involved in these committees and getting.
1: Yeah, senior leaders of Congress, such as the Speaker, such as the the uh, Intel Committee Chairman in the Senate and the House, they receive not only the written product, but they have access to intelligence community briefings as they see fit. The big difference, of course, as I mentioned, is the president's daily brief. And even after nine eleven, the huge investigation that went into that, mm-hmm. the president was not authorizing. Congress in its investigation to see historical president's daily briefs. It took the actual independent commission and a lot of public relations efforts to reveal some of the president's daily briefs to the commissioners so they can include that in their report.
0: A reminder that I'm speaking with David Priest, the author of the president's book of secrets and it's the history of the President's Daily Briefing and also intelligence briefings from Kennedy to Obama. Now, uh, go out and get that book. David, for that book, you interviewed 100 senior officials beyond the presidents. We talked about Henry Kissinger, uh, Jim Baker, Don Rumsfeld. Any interesting story from all the president's men?
1: Yeah, there they're actually quite a few interesting ones for some of your listeners who are interested in Watergate and the Nixon administration. Uh, one came down to me from one of the briefers who briefed the attorney general, John Mitchell. Uh, John Mitchell was a testy customer. He was somebody who was not shy about expressing his dissatisfaction with the, the product that was being received. And one morning after an election, I believe in Malta or something like that, Uh, Mitchell was griping to his briefer who happened to be a substitute for the regular briefer and Mitchell said something like I've never seen you guys call one of these elections right well in fact the previous days president's daily brief had called the election result and gotten it right but the substitute briefer simply hadn't seen it so he mentioned to to Mitchell he said well at, at least at least we got the Allende election right which was a reference to the Chilean election that had a lot of drama for the United <laughs> States, um, that was probably not the best rejoinder to use because referring to that election which had frustrated the Nixon administration enough to later try to overturn the elected Allende government, it did not go over well with Mitchell, who just snapped back at him. why didn't you do something about the election so that kind of that kind of relationship can can go that way. Some of the briefers from the Reagan administration told me that. Al Haig, as Secretary of State, was a very combative customer, pushing back on the assessments all the time, not wanting to believe the information that was being delivered. Uh, somebody else in that administration who was a customer of a lot of stories is George Schultz. George Schultz, as Secretary of State, very avid reader, uh, very quick to criticize the CIA when he thought it wasn't doing its job, but somebody who really engaged the material. In fact, Bob Gates has said that short of George H. W. Bush himself, George Shultz was the best customer among all the senior customers that he ever worked with across his decades
0: in intelligence. You know that that brings up a couple of good things to talk about. But one is, you know, we're we're narrowing down on our Reagan series, and uh, my couple of last episodes going to be on the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh any thoughts on that and, and, and I how intelligence might have helped with the Cold War and, and specifically right. one of the challenges I think that Reagan had was dealing with uh some conservatives and others, even even some Democrats, like Sam Nunn and some others like Hawkish Democrats who didn't necessarily trust Gorbachev right. and were worried. And maybe uh, i'm i'm thinking there were, there were a variety of ways that reagan kind of established that he did trust him and could work with them well, As margaret thatcher's endorsement helped reagan was a one-on-one guy and that certainly helped uh dealing with some of the russian culture and 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 learning more about it helped a bit do you think intelligence there played any role in 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 helping reagan
1: absolutely the Even Congress did an investigation after the end of the Cold War looking at this. I believe it was the House Intel Committee who who looked at this, directing a team specifically on the issue of economists. Because there was a lot of discussion afterwards about why didn't the CIA, why didn't the intelligence community warn us enough about how bad the Soviet economy was deteriorating, which led to some of these problems, which then led to the surprise of Gorbachev and all of this. And in fact, they found that the relevant analysis uh, was accurate, illuminating and timely. They thought, in fact, that it did point attention to the deep and structural problems in the Soviet economy. But I can also understand how policymakers would not feel well served by that, because I read an assessment pointing to some structural defects in the entire Soviet economy. Well, that doesn't necessarily give me that point to say next week there's going to be a political crisis. Right. And I, think, I think that's part of the difference between intelligence and decision-making. For decision-making, you want to know what's happening right now. You want predictions of what's going to happen, in some cases before the people doing those actions even know they're going to do it, where intelligence, you're just trying to reduce the uncertainty and point out the trends and point out the opportunities that are out there. With the end of the Cold War, it sure seems like, in all the declassified documents that have come out, that the CIA was trying to answer those crucial intelligence questions about how Soviet leaders would deal with the country's economic challenges and the uh, socioeconomic changes in the country when what changes in the political system could result. The themes were right, but whether the exact language was precise enough for the customers, well, George Shultz to this day says he wished he had more specific intelligence at the end of the Cold War.
0: Mm -hmm. Very difficult to predict that. Uh, mm-hmm. The Soviet system had numerous problems, but that it would be done by ninety one and then the, the way that it would be done not by um, not by a, a a real big revolt, but really by Russian nationalism and and nationalism in the republics um, you know was was probably surprising even for the Soviets, probably difficult, but yes, yeah. and the, yeah, one
1: of the best stories from this time is also from George Schultz, which is there's a real difference of opinion about what was going on in the Soviet Union among analysts at CIA, not just among policymakers. But George Shultz told me that he remembered once that he received a personality sketch from CIA analysts about Gorbachev and he didn't agree with it. And they said, well, we've interviewed a lot of people about it, so we feel confident in it. And he said, well, I have logged more time with Gorbachev than any other American and you didn't interview me. If you would have, I would have told you this fact and this fact and this fact. That would have informed your analysis better. So that actually points to the fact that some customers have intelligence of their own. They're getting information that may disagree with what somebody sitting at a desk at CIA headquarters thinks and they're not shy about saying so.
0: Yeah, but they're, but they're late. <laughs> could have yeah. used it before when I was making the products. Right on. Right <laughs> but you don't get to say those things and keep your job. <laughs> no, there's
1: a bluntness that comes in these relationships. Uh, I, I was blessed with people who I could speak to very bluntly, give them messages that I know they didn't want to hear based on mm-hmm. the intelligence assessments, and they would respect that. They understood that it was there to help them understand the situation. But that doesn't make it emotionally easy. If you hear news from an intelligence assessment that tells you effectively that some policy you've been trying to do isn't working, it's hard not to get aggressive about that because of all the energy you've put into that. It's a human business.
0: It's a human business. It's also there's a little bit of, uh, gosh, if this person's wrong, uh, you know, I, I have to make sure this person's right a little more than I normally would there's all right. of that this this goes on in in business in in, in politics and in, in a lot of uh, a lot of areas you brought up something earlier that I wanted to go back to because I think it's a probably a quick point and for you and something that's just in your blood but for our listeners very important thing to note and that is the consistency of assessment you could right. see you know the more they, I hadn't really thought about that a lot before I talked to you, but you could see in some countries that don't have a good reputation, you know, banana republics, third world countries and things, where an intelligence agency could very easily game a system by giving this assessment here to the, to the legislature and this assessment here to this person in the executive branch and this to the president and this to the, so it, it, it is a very important thing that the, in, in America, the national, security agencies and intelligence agencies have that goal of consistency of assessment. I mean, how strong can you say how confident can we be in that? Right. And has it ever do you ever hear of example if if, if it's happened where yeah. ha- you know in, in the where the opposite has happened or
1: Yeah, intelligence is an imperfect business. If it were precise, it wouldn't be intelligence. Mike Hayden is famous for saying that if it's if it's a fact, it's not intelligence. We deal with the unknown. Therefore, there are going to be errors. There's going to be times where the best analysts put their heads together and say, you know what? We really think that Saddam Hussein in Iraq has a lot of WMD, and here are the reasons why. But sometimes they're wrong. What we've discovered over time as as institutions is we've seen the intelligence agencies adapt and learn. One of the reasons that we have competing intelligence agencies is for this reason. I think if one intelligence agency were trying to push a particular line in order to influence policy, well, you've got other intelligence officers in other agencies who would say, well, wait a minute, we're looking at the same information and you're not playing it straight. So there's that check and balance inherent in the system. You also have the actual national security decision-making bureaucracy where you have officials responsible for certain areas of the world and They are very smart on those areas of the world. You're not going to get somebody who's been a State Department Foreign Service officer for 30 years working in the Middle East who's not going to know the dynamics of the Middle East. He or she may not agree with the intelligence assessments that he or she receives, but he or she is going to know the region well enough to know if the intelligence is being cooked. The experience I had and in the research that I did, I did not see any evidence of manipulation of intelligence. Very different than intelligence officers getting it wrong we do that all the time
0: certainly I would love to hear you talk about one of your um, what are your briefing recipients uh, Muller because uh, obviously his name has come back
1: <laughs> yeah yeah I can tell you a few things uh, I, I won't reveal anything about the actual material we briefed of course it's still classified and the nature of the relationship is often one that's uh, nearly sacred because you don't want to reveal someone's reactions. Um, but I can give you a general impression, which is that uh, Director Muller was the kind of guy who operated at, at two levels that I could see, and, and simultaneously, which was remarkable. He could both process the information I was giving him at a very tactical level, uh, down to the details, and remembering details from briefings days and weeks and months before, processing that, and at the same time, realizing what the strategic Implication was how the pieces all fit together. So it was almost like looking at a piece of a jigsaw puzzle and recognizing the actual pattern on the piece while keeping in mind the whole 1000 piece picture that he's trying to put together. A very sharp mind and very focused on that. Uh, The other thing that I learned from him is he is a pit bull gets a negative connotation, but the persistence and the diligence that he had. He did not let things go that he thought were incomplete. Um, He didn't settle for second best, and he didn't let me do that either. So in the intelligence briefings, very often, I would present something representing the analysis that I'd received and the experts that I'd talked to, and he would press me for more and press me for more and press me for more. And if it wasn't enough, he would let me know. And my job would be to get that additional insight for him from the people looking at the topic. Um, He wasn't somebody who let go easy. And I think that reveals something about where this investigation will go.
0: Oh, the great insight. Yeah, certainly good to know. And uh, in fact, I think one of the reasons that we enjoy you coming on so much, I believe there's so much of a thought that the CIA is this building with there's no light inside and it's such a dark, secret place, and we're not even allowed to know all these things that you're talking about. So it's uh it's great. Uh, Everyone go out and get The President's Book of Secrets by Dr. David Priest. And uh, we've really enjoyed having you on here. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome, Bruce. And we want to thank David Priest for coming on once again. And he has done us a favor. There are two additional questions that I ask him that he answers on the premium podcast. You can get the premium podcast as little as $2 a month. You can also gift it to other people this holiday season. The premium podcast is available at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com for that premium extra podcast. There's at least like 30 bonus items on that extra podcast feed. I want to thank you for listening.
2: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own.